News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, religion played a big role for many people this past weekend. It was Easter. uh, Friday also marked Passover. We are in the middle of Ramadan as well. And for others, though, it might just be a three- or four-day weekend. It depends on how much religion plays a role in your life. And that is something the latest Angus Reid Angus survey took a look at. And uh, Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute, joins us now to talk about that. Good morning. Good morning. So how spiritual are Canadians? It, it depends on what we consider the baseline. Of course, the, the answer is always depends. So one of the things we see is... Canadians are becoming less what we would call religiously committed. So they're, they're, they're less likely to be very all-in in terms of attending uh, a place of worship or praying regularly. That said, though, uh, four in five Canadians do profess some baseline belief in God or a higher power. So whether it's just for, call it insurance sake, or whether it's because they truly believe, uh, you've got almost 80% who, who do have some level of belief. That said, practice and, and demonstrative worship is something that is starting to trail off. Oh, okay. So would you pl- classify that as the religiously committed? Yes, that's that's correct. So people who tend to be more religiously committed, uh, that base or that pool of Canadians who who identify in that way, it is shrinking. But at the same time, uh, beneath the surface, you do see some some different um, currents and undercurrents sort of playing out, particularly as we look at Canadians across the interface. Spectrum. And what's really interesting, and, and you talked about what a, what a weekend and what a week this has been, also with the celebration of Vesaki, for example, for mm-hmm. uh, Sikhs uh, in Canada on Thursday, last Thursday, you have um, really different faith groups uh, also uh, worshipping differently, believing differently, and expressing different levels of religious commitment as well. And how do Canadians feel about that? Like, how do we view religions? It really depends on on who we're asking. So, for example, Canadians who are of um, uh, the Muslim faith and the evangelical Christian faith are far more likely to say things like uh, that that faith in general is is uh, providing a positive impact on Canadian community and society. Uh, other faith groups are a little bit more skeptical about that. If you are Jewish, if you are Hindu in this country, you're, you view that for, through a, a slightly more circumspect or, or jaded lens. Uh, but overall, people who are of faith are more likely to say that faith uh, brings uh, a richness to Canadian communities far more likely than, than atheists uh, who are more likely to say, look, in general, religion is not a good, um, is, is, is not a, a, an overall net positive for Canadian communities. That's what I found so interesting about this survey as well, is that you actually asked people in the religiously committed group about whether other religions uh, were positive or seen as damaging, and some of those results were quite surprising. Indeed. So, again, you have, I think, two or three faith groups that tend to be 
um, viewed more negatively by Canadians, regardless of, of their background, uh, than others. And so what are we dealing here with here? We're dealing with, for, for one thing, for starters, a level of Islamophobia in this country. So Canadians tend to not view Islam in a very positive light. Uh, they also really do not view evangelical Christianity in as positive a light, and also Catholicism. Well, what's going on with that? For example, we know that uh, that Islamophobia is a thing and has been a thing, and we saw, for example, the shooting at the, in the mosque uh, just uh, over the weekend, very upsetting. Um, uh, and then you've also got, for example, headlines after headline after headline around things such as the confirmation of, uh, of uh, unmarked graves at residential schools or former residential schools that were often run by Christian church groups, whether it's the Catholic Church or indeed um, other church groups. So as a result, I think we are, as a society, also kind of reacting to, to headlines and reacting to what we hear about. And as a result, you see some of those, uh, some of those perceptions and attitudes. Did you take a look at sort of the people who do tend to be more religiously committed? Did it break down in terms of demographics, age, gender in any way? So a couple of interesting things. Older people, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, more likely to say that they are more religiously mm-hmm. committed. Uh, but another really interesting finding is the impact of immigration in terms of faith in general. If you are first or second generation Canadian, you're much more likely to say that you are uh, religiously committed. You're much more likely to have been raised in a faith tradition than, uh, than, in, uh, than among people who are third, fourth, fifth generation Canadian. Interesting. And it sounds like younger Canadians also more likely to be on the less religiously committed side. That's correct. Older Canadians more religiously committed, younger Canadians not so much. Interesting stuff. Well, Shachi, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute, talking about their survey on uh, religion, religiosity in uh, Canada. And what's interesting also about their survey is the way they did this. So this new data that they're putting out is actually the culmination of two surveys that they did in, in this year, actually, so far. One they conducted in January and February, and it really included almost 1,300 Canadians from the four largest non-Christian faith groups, that would be Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, and Jewish. And then they conducted another one uh, involving almost 2,000 participants from the general population too. So to talk about kind of the spread of where they got all their information from too, kind of lines up with what we're hearing from Statistics Canada as well. So they came out with some data, well, late last year, I guess, that showed about 68% of Canadians 15 or older report having any kind of religious affiliation. And according to Statistics Canada, that is the first time that number has actually dipped below 70% since they began tracking this information back in 1985. Interesting stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Interesting financial news coming out of the United States in the last week. We heard that a Vancouver businessman named David Sadu is facing some new accusations of fraud. He was named as 
part of being involved in this multi-year, what's known as a pump and dump scheme that bilked investors out of potentially more than $145 million. Now, these are allegations that were revealed in a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission complaint. And there's a lot that is going on here, especially with these types of schemes. We wanted to kind of figure all of that out. So joining us now is Ari Goldkind, who's a legal expert and commentator. Ari, thanks for being back with us. Great to be with you, Simi. So taking a look at something like this, how often does the Securities Exchange Commission in the U.S. have such a big investigation like this one? So, sir, that's an interesting question because one of the things I often complain about here, even though I'm a defense lawyer, is the fact that these kinds of prosecutions or even complaints, because this is not a criminal charge Mr. Sidhu faces, interestingly, just for your audience to know, they might be more familiar with his previous 90-day stint in jail because he was part of the remember the full house right. Lori Lachlan paying to get your kid into uh, expensive universities by pretending they're on the rowing and tennis team and paying people yes. to fake the tests. So he actually did 90 days in jail for it. He's not Lori Lachlan and wasn't on full house. So most people don't know his name, but this is somebody who has certainly tasted the inside of a jail cell. Now, should he have done 90 days for that? Absolutely not in my view, but this is a complaint where two things are being sought. One, a return of the profits from the pump and dump scheme, just for people to know what that term means. You know a stock is crap. You get together with a bunch of people. You talk it up. You uh, boost it up. It goes up. You sell it. Everybody else loses their shirt once they realize the stock is literally worthless, and then you go off and do it again to more people. That's it at its very simplistic core. He's charged... Not Actually, it's a complaint. So he's not criminally charged, although many people in the scheme are. The point I was going to say at the beginning, because we're in Canada, and this is something I often bellyache about, is how you don't see any really successful prosecutions in Canada, the Toronto Stock Exchange, British Columbia. Nobody listening really understands the extent of fraud in our markets. But our investigators, and I use that term generously, really are underfunded, underskilled. They're completely outmatched by defense lawyers. Versus, to your question, Simi, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and particularly the Southern District of New York, which really means Manhattan, they have teams really set up and who exist to investigate and prosecute things like that. And my view is Canada and our securities industry would be Mm -hmm. a lot less full of fraud if we matched the power that the Southern District of New York brings, sometimes inappropriately, we don't have time to talk about those stories, <laughs> but they certainly they certainly don't take a blind eye to this when news hits their right. um, laptops. So, are you make an interesting point then there. This kind of scheme that has been, been laid out in this complaint from the Securities and Exchange Commission, how often do you think this happens? Like you said, Canada doesn't enforce this enough. We don't investigate this enough. Do investors get bilked out of money? from schemes like this? I think a ton, Simeon. Here's why I don't think you'll ever hear about it. There are exchanges throughout our country, and I'm not even talking about the NASDAQ, but smaller exchanges in our country where somebody hears about a penny stock. This was a big thing in and around the 2000s, you may remember. Uh, People will hear about a penny stock. My friend's starting a company. They're going to do this. They have a patent on this. They found oil here. And you'll invest, Simeon. This is why we're not talking, you know, Bill Gates money. They'll invest five or $10,000, which is a lot of money to them. They'll lose their shirt. 
But at that point, you're not really thinking to yourself, I'm going to call the RCMP. You're embarrassed. You're mortified by your loss. The people who have done it are all hidden in limited liability corporations, trusts. It's impossible. I mean, think how hard it is. I'm being serious now, Simi. No, yeah. And if somebody's listening to us, think about how hard it is to call Vancouver City Hall and complain about a fact that a dog is barking all night next to you. Now think about the web, the the interspersed um, places that you would have to think to call if you thought you'd be defrauded. And the RCMP is very poorly set up to do this. No offense, but I've gone off on this before. So the reason you don't hear enough about this is because the numbers that each investor, that's the point, each investor tends to lose are smaller. And when it's bigger institutional investors, Simi, it's spread out amongst a bunch of people. And I think everybody tends to often be in on it, even when they say, oh, this came as a big surprise. Right. All right. But this is, isn't this something that in particular Vancouver was known for back in the day? It seems to me that when there was a Vancouver stock exchange, these kinds of stories ran rampant. Yeah. Not only Vancouver then, but I believe now, I mean, look, whether people don't want to get into it because, you know, they view these things as the third rail. You look at British Columbia and the amount of fraud that goes on in, in that province, whether it be foreign investment in real estate, whether it be casino schemes, money laundering. I mean, nobody wants to talk about it because everybody's a coward to talk about it. So when I see Justin Trudeau and, you know, very specific house flipping members of parliament in your province talking about making housing affordable and doing this, I'm like, uh, how about you start with the idea that British Columbia, like Ontario, by the way, is a complete cesspool for money laundering and all sorts of other chicanery that nobody wants to put a stop to because they won't dare talk about anything like that. And it's just, it's really unfortunate because, Simi, rather than people thinking I'm bellyaching about it, this makes life much worse, much less affordable for the honest, ordinary, average, hardworking, taxpaying citizen of Vancouver, the teacher, the plumber, the engineer, the nurse, even the doctor, who are priced out of their cities because so much money is being washed in schemes right. that are no different than the pump and dump we're talking about right now. Okay, but looking at what this scheme is all about, this pump and dump scheme from the SEC, you know, they're talking about people who benefited from this. They name uh, David Sidhu as being a person who potentially benefited from this scheme. What is the recourse then in something like that? Well, Would they want the money back? It's a great question. So what they want are two things, Simi. They want, one, an injunction, which means he can't do this in the future and his trading has to be circumscribed or stopped. And remember, to that point, all of this is done through shell companies, different name companies. I don't want to bore you with the details of what people can do when they have money to hide their finances. The second is they want the return of what they're calling ill-gotten gains. That's their term. And that amounts to, in this scheme, about one4 million dollars. He's not charged criminally, although a number of people involved in this city, it's interesting why he's not, Yeah, but others are. There's about six to seven that are charged with securities fraud and other criminal charges, including three Canadians. So as the information comes out, it'll be interesting to see what distinguishes his role as to the fact he's not being charged criminally and right. it's a complaint 
for those two things. But very quickly then here, Ari, last question. Now that he's been named in this United States SEC complaint, does that flag Canadian authorities at all? Do they think, okay, maybe we need to investigate the Canadians who are on this list? A hundred million percent. And it goes back to the point I raised at the beginning of our chat that our the people who investigate this are outgunned, outmanned, outwomaned, whatever politically correct term you want to use today. Of course, he's on their radar screen. He's probably been on it for quite some time. But we are a country that literally and completely and utterly lets the bad guys get away with it. It's just simply because they're not carrying guns or knives. They're using weapons of mass finance. And again, as I said, this affects people listening to us right now in ways they don't even think about starting with affordability and all sorts of other things that make cities either livable or unaffordable. Ari, thank you, as always. Enjoyed that. Pleasure, Cindy. That's Ari Goldkind, legal expert and commentator, talking about this out of the United States Securities and Exchange Commission allegations that named a whole bunch of people as being involved in a multi-year pump and dump scheme that built investors out of more than $145 million U.S. Now, there were lots of names on there, several Canadians, including Vancouver businessman David Sidhu, as being one of listed as one of the beneficiaries of this. So let's be very interesting to see what the next steps are. This is Mornings with Simi. How about some good news today? How about some uplifting news on this Easter Monday? We were just talking about people who'd been displaced by that devastating fire in Gastown. Well, they actually got some good news as well this weekend. They were able to take part in the Union Gospel Mission's annual Easter meal that took place on Saturday. How many meals did they make? What does it take to get ready for this? Well, Nicole Mucci joins us now, Manager of Media Relations and Communications at the Union Gospel Mission. Nicole, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. So how many people were served an Easter dinner this weekend? So we actually still have one more meal coming up today, but all together we're looking at around 2,400 Easter meals being given to community members. Wow. Okay. And so what kind of a meal are we talking about here? What is served? Oh, it is just an amazing Easter meal. It took up to about 1,300 pounds of ham, 425 pounds of scalloped potatoes, some really tasty pineapple sauce on there, veggies, and um, apple pie. In fact, it took 400 apple pies to cut up and hand out this weekend. Okay, I don't even know where to start. Like, I think I have to cook a lot of food at my house, but (laughs) how do you cook that many pounds of ham and scalloped potatoes? Like, what kind of preparation goes into this, Nicole? Oh, it's a massive team effort. And um, interestingly, during COVID times, we've really scaled back on being able to have volunteers and everything in with us. Pre-COVID, we would have over 100 volunteers through the course of the week. um, And on the day of the major meal, come in and really work with us to get everything going. This is our last, hopefully, COVID-style meal where we had way fewer uh, volunteers which meant just our teams working pretty much around the clock to try to get everything ready to go. Oh boy, so that must have been quite a strain then. So were people able to come in and sit down or were you still doing it kind of the COVID way? So today or this weekend was hopefully our last kind of COVID style out the door um, major meal to go. And we have some plans for the spring to really get everyone back inside and um, teacher retrain some of our new outreach workers on how to 
do the indoor meals because it is quite involved. And by Thanksgiving, we're really looking forward to having that big, usual fanfare where there's live music and it's a really wonderful, joyous occasion. Oh, yeah, it is. Okay, so how much preparation, Nicole, then goes into this? To to start serving 2,400 people, how many weeks ago do people, do volunteers start getting into the mode? Um, we have volunteers who contact us like pretty much after Christmas being like, sign me up for Easter if you can. Um, but then we also have people come in and we also, we handed out with the meals, chocolates and oranges and socks and stuff like that. And so we have volunteers coming in two weeks ago, even like, uh, placing everything into bags and making sure we had enough of everything. That's amazing. Now, what what is the rationale behind this, Nicole? I know you, UGM has been doing this for years and years and years, but what did, what do you think it does for people to provide this meal? Of course, that's a really good question, and I'm glad you asked it. So we know that the last couple of years have been really difficult, and our community members have been really swimming upstream, trying to stay um, okay, but it can feel pretty easy. It can be pretty easy to begin to feel a little bit hopeless um, when we look at the fact that there are record numbers of people dying from uh, the poisonous drug supply. Still, there was, you know, 150 people just about displaced from the Gastown fires recently. Canada Post has um, halted the mail delivery service to a couple of blocks in the downtown east side. Folks are struggling with inflation rates where they're unable to potentially pay their rent and purchase food on a regular basis. And so things are really, really tough. Having a meal like this gives us an opportunity to come together, to build a relationship with our community members, to say, we've got you. We love you. We know that things are tough, but we will be here rain or shine. We will be here pandemic or not to not only have this meal ready to go, but to build a relationship with you, to love you, and to just say, let's find something that we can celebrate together. And Easter really is, you know, a wonderful time that reminds us about renewal. It reminds us about the fact that the, you know, spring is here. There's hopefully going to be some light after the darkness. And we just really look forward to those moments with our community members. Right. Oh, that sounds so great. Does it, so does it also allow that point of connection then? Does it give, give perhaps some people who are living on the streets a chance to say, oh, wait a minute, this service is available or this service is available? A hundred percent. It's actually really vital that we have meals because they can be sometimes our first point of contact for someone who may have recently become homeless or may... Um, not know what services are available for people. So for example, on Saturday, um, we met a man named Doug and he was sitting down to eat the meal and him and I were chatting a little bit and he shared with me that he actually had just lost everything in the fire. He was one of the residents of the Gastown fire. And he had said that the only meal he had had was dinner at UGM the night before and he hadn't eaten in almost 12 hours. And so he's really looking forward to the meal. But in our conversation, we were able to share that we have a clothing room available and we can right. get him a jacket. Um, a cameraman actually gave him a jacket off of his back, which was maybe one of the most beautiful things I've seen in a really long time. But we were able to say, we have caseworkers who will work with you to, to see if we can find yeah. you housing, to see what kind of additional supports we can get for you. And that happens at every meal we have whether it's Thanksgiving or a Tuesday afternoon or Easter, 
our outreach workers are there to mm-hmm. let people know what we can offer. Oh, it's so lovely. Nicole, thank you for telling us about it today. Thank you so much for having me. That's Nicole Mucci, Manager of Media Relations at Union Gospel Mission. You can check out their website for more information about you can help volunteering, financial contribution, whatever the case may be. But boy, they are busy on a weekend like this. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we're going to talk about the increase in interest rates. There's a new report out today that finds more than half of British Columbia, so about 53%, say they are already feeling the effects of those interest rate increases. Let's find out how that is. Joining us now is Linda Paul, a licensed insolvency trustee, to talk more about this. Linda, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you. What are you hearing from people? How are these higher interest rates impacting them? Well, like you said, we're seeing a lot more people um, feeling the pinch from interest rates rising. Um, More people are concerned about their ability to pay their debts. Uh, We see that about 60% of British Columbians are feeling that way. And about 50% are saying that they're probably going to have to borrow more money um, in order to just make ends meet. And uh, from that number, about 35% are saying that rising interest rates could drive them closer to filing a bankruptcy. Okay, so that does that sound like you're going to be hearing more about that then in the months ahead? I hope so. Just just from the sense that, or from from the perspective that people that are struggling don't necessarily know that there are resources out there to help them. They can have a free consultation and discuss their financial situation with a licensed professional at MNP and figure out what their options are to deal with that aside from just taking on more debt. Right. What's happening to people's disposable income? We've seen the largest dis- uh, pardon me, decrease in disposable income across the country, um, and that's in British Columbia. So people have less money each month to deal with their debts, and people are telling us that they're about $200 away or less from not being able to make all of their financial obligations, um, and that's up about one percentage point. So about 46% of British Columbians are saying that. Linda, do you get the sense that this caught people off guard? Because certainly there were a lot of signals, right, that interest rates were going to rise. Yeah, I, I, that's true. We do, we've been hearing about interest rates for a long time now. We, there were historically low rates during the last two years, and people, I think, were just hoping that maybe it would be pushed down the, um, down the road a little bit further. But as the interest rates are rising, people are realizing that the cost of servicing some of those debts, are, it's just becoming increasingly more difficult for them to pay them down. So what kind of options then are available for people? Like, What are the questions that they should ask? Um, well, they should seek out professional help. They should talk to a licensed insolvency trustee before they make any more decisions about borrowing money. Um, it's difficult for people to make that phone call. A lot of people think that there's a lot of um, shame and regret that um, comes with having debt. Uh, people feel stress and anxiety. They feel like they're alone. They're the only one that is experiencing this type of dif- difficulty. And they feel like a failure on some level. A lot of people tie their um, feelings of success to how they're doing financially. Um, a lot of people feel that they'll never get out of debt um, and that there isn't any help available. So how can you plan for something like this? Like if we hear that, oh, interest rates are going to be uh, going up even more over the rest of 2022, like what should we be doing to get ready for that? The best thing that people do or that people can do is talk to a licensed insolvency trustee 
and fi- figure out what their options are. There's a, there's a lot of people that just don't know that there is help available. This makes it sound, though, Linda, like a lot of people are essentially living just really paycheck to paycheck, like just covering all their bills. Yeah, we are seeing that a lot. I mean, British Columbians still have um, a lot more, tend to make more income than um, in other provinces. So they have had the luxury of having more money to service that debt. But as we see the interest rates rising, um, it's going to get a little bit tighter for people. Uh, Sounds like it. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that. That is Linda Paul, Licensed Insolvency Trustee with MNP Limited, talking about how their new report shows that about 53% of British Columbians that they surveyed said that they are already feeling the effects of interest rate increases. We talked about disposable income there. The survey also found that British Columbians have experienced the largest decrease in disposable income across the country. It's down $269 to about $734. That's after having the most disposable income the last time they had done that survey in the last quarter. So the potential for additional, obviously, interest rate hikes are on the board here. Bank of Canada has signaled that they intend to keep doing this uh, for 2022. So yes, we all need to be prepared for that. According to the survey, that means that an increasing number of British Columbians say they are becoming more and more concerned about their ability to pay their debts. About 60% of the people they surveyed said exactly that, that they are worried about that. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com.